Hello, this is a reading of selections from Seneca 111, 25th anniversary issue in rough order from shortest to longest text. Uh, the writers whose work I'm going to be reading are Judy Haggai, Ace Bogus, Martina Newberry, John Etchem, Colin James, Joe Ciccione, Raymond Solard, Tamara Miles, Charlie Bear, and Timothy Vilgiate, in that order. So we begin with Ms. Haggai. Another morning, different from all others, new clouds in the sky. Another morning, different from all others, new clouds in the sky. For each ache or pain, many possibilities, not just corona. For each ache or pain, many possibilities, not just corona. Uh, I follow the lead of an old British friend in reading each haiku twice, because they go by so fast otherwise. Ace Bogus. The title is, Despite the crisis and its many worries, have you experienced a moment of grace? And this comes from a question asked by Raymond Solard, Jr. And the poem. Yesterday, a tulip began its run into bloom, orange and yellow, like the fountain pen blade of a candle's flame. Isolated in its bed, socially distanced from other flowers to avoid the spread of death among last week's lilies, it rose like a rocket's trail, bright in the moment, scale model of a burning bush. I stared for minutes while smoking and didn't cough or choke, avert my gaze from blessed light. All within was calm as sleep. I'd forgive the end if it came then. It didn't, and when my embers snuffed, I went inside. Martina Newberry. The poem is called What Is. Stars are white moths. They chew through the night sky until it is eaten up more holes than sky, and then it is morning again. Fire is every love affair lost. It burns through bodies, leaves ashes waiting for a phoenix to rise and take flight. Water is sound, words tumbling over each other, words speaking to words, flashing silver back at the sky, dousing rocks and souls, hands and mouths. Earth is a ravenous animal. It devours everything that steps on it. Rain, petals, lightning, footsteps, spit, tears, blood. All that touches it becomes a banquet. Wind is the reminder of love, of grief, of fear, of longing, of pain, of lungs, filling with the breath of need to speak truly, the ability to carry what moves 
below the canyons. John Etchem, the poem is called My Woman, My Land. My woman, worn out by fingering hands, as if she's not the jewel that held suitors out, my land. My woman, the fabled laughter of her youth, before the sun went nude, her tulips waning like the moon, my land. My woman, enchanted her vista, lovesome her horizon, I laid near her crib for a nap, clothed with verdure, her sweet splendor, my land. My woman, murmurous voices of bees, the crackling of raspberries, fleeting glances of birds, my land. My woman, her grape pomace, crushed to pulpy mess, her eyes haggard and cavernous, her wounds reek of tetanus, my land. Colin James, the poem is called Ethics as a Consequence. This was before they finally found Bigfoot, hired him as a greeter at the local Walmart. Ma said he would be moody, and she was right, of course. He lifted up two kids then, threw them much higher into the air. But before they eventually came down, his mood had changed again to friendly, yearned for a peanut butter jelly sandwich. Around the time Mom bought her shoes, red high heels four sizes too small, refused to take them off, wore them 24 hours a day. Then she got caught in a Oklahoma rain. They stuck to her feet like bias. On his third visit, Doc cut those shoes off, said that was the best he could do. She would always walk like an old dog, trying to negotiate hot asphalt. It was when I saw you crossing Mr. Parsegian's field. You were dressed in that stained white penny. I didn't realize you already had five kids. You must have just washed your hair or something because it glowed in the morning sunlight. I stood and watched till you were gone. Joe Ciccione, Contagion. Moving like a boat whistle in the fog to all corners and quick, from the ragged men along the railway line to those that have sat for years on the top bow and to the bald children and the ignorant, those with flowers in their ears and the aging, some who can still drive themselves to the iron gates, who look over their shoulders one last time trying to remember what it was like to be young. Suddenly we find ourselves saying goodbye, unable to hug, unable to kiss, still walking, still taking our own breaths. The lights are going up in the fairground. Some arrive with their puppies and their tumors. Some expect to see Jesus or John Frum, but the tents are filled only with straw men saying what will be will be. Some will slide by 
never knowing what it means to have to do what you have to do. The shapes in some beds are still, while others are moving. And although your heart still keeps my blood pumping, this may be our Galilee. Please, don't let them put me in the room with all the dead, because when you're dying, you should feel like you're the only one. Moving into four prose pieces here, Raymond Solard, A Troubled Child. I was what you might call a troubled child. I always found ways to get in trouble in the small town I lived in called, called Weird God Town. You know it? I rarely got caught, though. It was just a reputation that lingered round me until, well, I had this dream that I couldn't remember one morning, and it followed me around all day into junior high school, where I learned nothing worth knowing. So I left junior high school that day, and I went down to the local store, Chief Seattle's Friendly Market. It was winter time, and there was snow everywhere, and the snow made a lot more sense than people ever had. And so what happened was I began to make snowballs, made them hard, tight, and round, and I stuck them in the deep pockets of my long woolen overcoat. It's a little long and a little old, drags along the ground a bit, but I like it a lot. What happened next was I went into that store and I waited for the perfect moment, and then I began to fling my snowballs everywhere. I threw them in the aisles filled with tin cans of soup. I threw them in the aisles filled with sodas and beers. I threw them in the aisles filled with paper goods. I threw them at the many cash registers. I threw them at the ceiling and at the floor. I seemed to have more and more snowballs, no matter how many I threw. And that was a turning point for me, because, you see, I was grabbed from behind and drugged by unseen hands to the back of the store. I was drugged into some kind of storeroom and down a long flight of stairs, and suddenly I was in this strange, glowing place where it was hard to see very well, but there was a steady, hmm. I was drugged down a long hallway, and I could feel something about me changing. I was no longer the scrawny little thing causing trouble and getting away with it mostly. I was taller. I was more adult. Really weird. I was somehow brought to a party in what looked like a great big house barn. There were microphone stands everywhere old Dumont televisions all over the place with Antennar 5000s on top. Some of them were showing the strange activities of this party. Others of them seemed to be showing parties that were happening somewhere else. One had some kind of band of dreams playing at it. Another was at a big homemade table in someone's backyard, but the house was half-built. An old man and a lot of smiling people were there, though. At first, no one talked to me, and I thought, mm, maybe I'm in a dream. Maybe I got knocked out by one of my own snowballs. Who knows? But no, I never went back from where I come. That night, I slept among a lot of people and other kinds of beings on mattresses with pillows and blankets that were put out all over the house barn, and in the morning, no one made me go back. 
In fact, when I was talked to, finally, I was told in a very dark room, in a low, sincere voice, you are now part of a worldwide conspiracy investigating why humans are so unhappy and restless. You are going to help because you have unhappiness and restlessness clouding your heart too. The low, kindly voice continued, It is not in your nature to be so unhappy and so restless like that. Something has gone wrong with you and everyone else, and you must help us to investigate. So I agreed, and I have, and I am. Tamara Miles, Church in the Greenhouse, a pandemic journal. First day in the greenhouse, I planted peonies that may not bloom this year, but they will bloom in fire when they rise, all shouts and colors, canticles of memory, passion in the turned soil of grief. March 16, 2020. This church is open. Hello, everyone. I'm writing in a time of quarantine for the coronavirus, COVID-19. I have never had an experience like this one, though other folks have, of course. Many years ago, the world was beset by such plagues as this and did not fare as well as we have so far. I may write about medieval plagues in the church at some point, but today I'm opening my own church door for any believers or seekers or unbelievers who want to see what it's about. My home church is a little greenhouse attached to my house, and so far I'm the only full-time human member. I have guests, though, occasionally, and they include both people and other creatures. For example, Fernando and Poncho, two toads who have made my acquaintance. Fine fellows. Also, I have many slugs who are eating their share of my greens. I haven't given them names, but this is a matter of prejudice that I need to address. Add to that the itinerant mosquito and other flying insects, a stink bug or two, and earthworms. I imagine before too long a rabbit will find its way in there as I have started leaving the greenhouse door open on these warmer days of March. What I mean to say is, welcome. In this journal I want to talk about church. That's my overarching theme. I don't promise that I won't go far and wide and deep within that theme, so far that you may have to give me a nudge and say, what does this have to do with church? And that is an excellent question I've been asking myself, too, given all the divisions that exist within and without churches today. This is part of the reason I don't go to actual churches much anymore, though I grew up in church. I call myself a recovering Southern Baptist, and that's only a little tongue-in-cheek. So, I'm opening the door. Come in any time and sit on one of my red pillows. There are no other pews. This is a tiny church. See you soon. Blessings, Tamara. March 19, 2020. When the roof caves in. Hello, everyone. Two nights ago, while I was sleeping, a heavy rainfall crushed the greenhouse roof, which was not much more than PVC pipes and plastic. Whenever we thought it was going to rain, we would reinforce the roof with these pipes, but we didn't know it was raining that night. 
Isn't that just how it goes? The rain comes, the roof falls, while you're sleeping. No fear, congregation. As I was taught, the church isn't the building. It's the creatures who inhabit it, in a spirit of community and grace and all good things. Only a few of the plants were bruised and disorganized, but, well glory, everything is all right. Look here, new green shoots, new underfeathering, leaves widening and spreading. We are alive. Reminds me of one of my favorite poems, Sestina by Elizabeth Bishop. It is a hymn, really, because what is a hymn but an act of praise, a song, a poem, beautiful lines especially. Time to plant tears, says the almanac. The grandmother sings to the marvelous stove, and the child draws another inscrutable house. Yes, time to plant tears among the joyful green. We are a nation in a world of hurt right now, with a virus spreading itself like a poisonous vine. We are the inverse, too, a world on the first day of spring, waiting to sprout new life. We are at once fragile and fearless. The sun is out, and I feel brave today. I hope you do, too. This is a church of the brave. Enjoy those beautiful lines and feel the rain. Plant the tears. Pray in the way you know how. See you soon under a new roof. Blessings. Tamara. Charlie Bayer, the pervert of Pickett Creek. The meadowlarks sing their manic mantra, hidden in the surrounding sea of sagebrush. It sounds like a dozen cell phones going off at once. Here on Pickett Creek, the locals talk of the wonderful view of the mountain, which is too close, but I only see the snow line rising and falling, often down to my desert gulch. At first I agreed to the glorious vista, but now I think, fuck the view. I'm longing for pavement clicking under my heels, the roar of the freeway, and the stinky blast of a transit diesel's exhaust. My wolf dog and I are exiled to the desert on a patch of vertical rocks covered in lizards. My neighbors sold this to me, calling this parcel land. On this land, I created a shack balanced on a rock that the wind blows in one side and sucks out the other. When I ran out of, <clears throat> when I ran out of stolen wood, the remaining walls were constructed out of cheap Chinese tarps, which inflate and collapse with each new zephyr, not unlike living inside a breathalyzer test. The dog often sits in the car, wondering when we are going home. I have to explain to him that we are perpetually camping now. Slowly, I build my shop, getting tough from the work and leathery from the elements. So far, I've made a lot of plans, spent a lot of money, and have a huge pile of crap on the ground. Long live lethargy, I cry in rebellion to the heap of waiting work. My friends here are generous to a fault, at first inviting me to stay in their camper and have dinner with them. 
but soon, after I pig out on seconds and thirds, then start in on their fridge leftovers, my welcome wears thin. Go ahead and use the computer, they say. Well, okay. They know what an email junkie I am. I write a few complaining letters to those who still irregularly correspond with me. Then the devil gets in me, as is likely to happen. Naturally, I'm hornier than a two-peckered billy goat, with all this fresh air and months of celibacy. Need to perk my memory of what the good stuff looks like. Maybe just type celebrity nudes into the Google search for a peek. Wow. Nice. Brittany Titany. The web page's pop-ups direct me to Asian teens, then booty busters. Hey, getting a few rises now. But whoa-ho, each link is connected to ten others, rapidly clicking on ultimate gangbangs, bondage babes, and, hey, what's this, mpegs of cowgirls and horses. Well, I'm not a speciesist. Everyone and everything should have the right to fuck everything else. I blow past the virus warning and download equine love for 20 gigabytes. Now the screen is flashing from one depravity to another. Seems I got a direct feed from Los Angeles. Better clean this up. Eighty icons stacked in the taskbar. I madly start clicking delete. As fast as I can poof them, dozens more roll in. Mixed in are messages like, this is a program. Are you sure you want to delete it? Hell yeah, can't stop now. Everything on the computer now, from favorites to documents, is blown through with fivesome and a hermaphrodite. Boner faded now with my frantic extraction from sicko cyberspace. Finally do the Control-Alt-Delete and wipe the mess. A light trickle of smoke Aftin, as the whirring dies down. But I'm out. Shut off the screen and go about my merry way. Later that day, when the proprietor returns, he has to have a talk with me. The computer I sought voyeuristic love on was the main hub of a half-dozen networked computers. Everything is trashed. His trading business is blown out of the water. Some trades in progress are going south at the rate of $300 an hour. Unless he can get back online, he'll be destitute by morning. When he goes to Wheat Future Graphs, Korean virgin slashers comes up. His wife is looking at snake sex instead of Arab horse sales. Seems the network hub switched out all the IP numbers for the networked computers, grabbing whatever was available, which was a lot. They have to bring the computer weenie neighbor over to unscramble the mess. At long last, he does so. Some fragment of my former friend's fortune remains intact. The neighbor goes home and tells his wife, do you think she talked? So now I'm banned from computer use, relegated to my shack down in the gulch, shamed from the company of men, and certainly woman. We shuffle about here, me and my half-frozen wolf dog, stamping our feet to hold off frostbite. The locals now drive by without the customary cowboy waving, averting their eyes from the pervert of Pickett Creek. And this last piece is by Timothy, and I'm going to say Vilgiate, Vilgiate. He's new here in, in uh, the Senecal this month, this, uh, this quarter. Uh, and here's a selection from his novel, 
Rivers of the Mind. It begins with a quotation from Arcade Fire. Purify the colors, purify my mind. Spread the ashes of the colors over this earth of mine. And chapter one is called Blue Topaz. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's quite long, but I'm going to read a couple pages of it, three pages. Chapter one, Blue Topaz by Timothy V, Rivers of the Mind. The blue topaz crystal represents eternity. It has a pure soul, everlasting and serene. I found one in a creek bed in a little town in the Texas hill country. It's the state's stone. I'd hitchhiked there from Alabama, where I was looking for blue quartz and agate. Blue quartz promotes creativity and inner peace. Agates, another popular gem, are for people in need of protection. I sold a lot of... The people I met often seemed like they were in need of solace, relief. I strung the blue topaz crystal onto a hemp cord and kept it in a box with the others. That was three days ago. It was the crystal I dug out of my things this morning when I needed comfort. The acid from the day before was still lingering, and I felt uneasy. I checked the clock. Thirty-four hours, nine minutes had gone by since I took it. It had been a beautiful trip, just beautiful, but I was ready for it to stop. The place someone goes with acid isn't a place they should stay. I had taken a lot, more than I had expected to take. For the first hour or so, I stared up at the sky. I was next to a big military compound where someone told me that the government had found a UFO. I was hoping to see something, but I quickly forgot about it and instead just laid in the grass, staring up at the stars. Time seemed to melt away, and I let my mind drift, slowly breaking ties with my body and collapsing into the heavens until I was surrounded in color. Moments from the last few years drifted over me, the lingering feeling that I was not where I was supposed to be melted away. I forgot the feeling that at my age, with my education, I should have been somewhere in North Dakota, working on an oil field, living with a wife and kids, and a house and a car, not homeless, wandering the country looking for crystals and making necklaces. I forgot about it all. When the acid peaked, it must have been close to midnight, but I was far too gone to return to my body and look at my watch. I'm somewhere else, somewhere indescribable, when I start to feel myself fall. A great titanic gravity begins pulling me in, and I feel myself just imperceptibly slide into what I could only explain as a, a crack in the universe. Thick, glowing blue energy pulses around me. I'm surrounded by a chattering whirl of panicked voices and sirens. I think for a moment that I've ended up in the hospital, but I make myself relax and let it be telling myself not to get bogged down in what might be happening. Whatever is, is. That is that. For a moment I wade in the energy. Souls are being sucked down into some kind of indescribable deep, leaving their bodies as I sit still, entirely unmoved. I wonder what I'm seeing. Am I looking at hell? Heaven? I feel an energy wash over me, taking me under like a great wave at high tide spilling over my body. It surrounds me with the sounds and sensations of peace. If I'm dead, I'm comfortable with it and can accept whatever comes my way.
For a moment, my body cries out to me, and I can see it miles above me, sitting in the field, a feeling like cold water pouring from my brain and down over my bones floods over me. The sensation still lingered there as I woke up. It was five in the morning. Everything around me was like a solemn and grave blue. The trees and rocks breathed. Swirls of fractal patterns edged at the periphery of my vision. I was still tripping and hard. When I propped myself up, I found the grass around me bent outwards. I wondered for a while if I'd been abducted by aliens, but ended up laughing the thought off. Reorienting myself, I found my bags hidden underneath a tree. I took out the topaz crystal and waited to come down, overwhelmed with awe at the power of what had happened the night before. I breathed in. Thank you, I whispered to the earth. I could almost feel it groan in reply. That was this morning, and I was still there later that day underneath the tree, still seeing everything around me breathe still seeing fractals out the corners of my eye, my mind still racing like your mind does sometimes when you're at the peak of a trip. I'd taken enough that I hardly expected to feel totally normal the next day, but not enough that I should have been feeling these effects that far into the day. I had wondered for the last hour or so what to do. I needed to come back to reality. Sometime, just before nightfall, with no end in sight, the idea hit me. Vitamin B, niacin. My friend in Philadelphia used that to come down from a crazy acid trip a few years back. I'd passed a Walmart while walking into town. I'd walk there, buy some vitamins, and then hopefully I could come down. Walking to Walmart felt like it took eons. Cars dragged by, followed by brilliant tracers. Some of them looked like army cars, probably heading to that compound. A few folks glanced at me with suspicion, but mostly paid me no mind. But I could feel their thoughts. How sad. How disgusting. So sad to see heroin destroying this town, coming at me in overwhelming waves. I could hear the gears inside of their mouth engines in minute detail, the sound of teeth gnashing down against gum behind barely cracked windows. I could see colors around them. Most of them were red, some gray, some violet and blue. Halos of light behind their heads. Souls quivering behind their eyelids. It was an hour of this until I got to Walmart. The flickering of the lights in the parking lot burnt my eyes. I knelt down against the ground and held my hands over my eyes, at which point I was treated to a vivid swirl of aggravating yellows and blues. I heard a voice nearby, a woman's voice. I can't let my kids see this. I ought to call the police. My eyes darted up at her. Huh? I asked. A woman, putting her child into a car seat, looked back over her shoulder. I didn't say anything. I don't believe her at first, but when I look at the cuts behind her eyes, I realize that she isn't lying. I studied her closer. She's in pain. Her husband is gone again, and she's afraid to be sleeping in the house alone. I wanted to give her an agate for strength, but I didn't need to read her mind to know she was afraid of me. 
disgusting. I heard her mumble in her thoughts. He's staring at me. So creepy. I turned away and moved on quickly. I can't hear her thoughts. I can't hear anyone's thoughts, I murmured to myself. Another family, getting into their car, all stared at me. I looked back at them. Did he just say something? I heard them say, although their lips weren't moving. A teenage boy inside of the car pictures himself in my shoes with horror. His little sister thinks I look like someone from her history book. Their mother is preoccupied with whatever she is planning on doing with the guacamole she bought at the store. The father is fantasizing about killing me, but still in the back of his mind also thinking about the guacamole. It wasn't what you'd think. <clears throat> I walked quicker, trying hard not to let any words leak from my brain. An old lady exited the Walmart and started heading towards me. Her cart creaked and groaned. She's tired, exhausted, deeply sad. How can I ignore her? I suppose it could be a delusion, but what if it's not? Can I help you? I asked, as she opened the back door of her tiny red sedan. My voice sounds raspy and earthen to her. She looked at me with a faint smile, but a deep-seated fear. She's afraid. She pictures me trying to mug her. I shut my eyes. She thinks I sound crazy. With the bags, I can help you load up your car, I croaked. I don't have any money, she said. She assumes I'm a beggar. I suppose I look the part. I don't need any. Without another word, I lifted up the two heavier bags and set them in the back of her car for her. Thank you, young man, she said. I hear her breathe a sigh of relief in her mind. I nodded and hurried into the Walmart. Grabbing a cart and struggling to right my course as I entered the store, I looked up toward the ceiling to try to read the signs. None of the letters made sense to me. All of them seemed jumbled and bizarre. This place is loud, exploding with minds, with music, with buzzing lights. The manager spotted me immediately. I looked threatening. He's expecting me to steal something. He imagines fighting me off with an assault rifle or engaging me in a knife fight. If he can teach me a lesson, maybe Jill from customer service will finally see that he's... I need to stop, I tell myself. I can't hear what they're thinking. The colors I'm seeing are from the acid. So are the voices. So is everything. Trembling, I wandered toward what looked like a pharmacy and saw a row of green bottles I presumed. None of the labels made any sense to me. I couldn't read. Irritated, I threw up my hands and pondered, trying to find a customer service person. The thought unnerved me. What was I thinking? I can't have a normal conversation right now. I can't handle that. I guess I should have thought of that before I came here. I thought of all the people in the parking lot who had thought about calling the police. If I got arrested, I didn't want to imagine what could happen. Not here in Texas. I heard a woman's footsteps come by. An employee? A young woman in a Walmart uniform appeared around the corner. She was a little bit shorter than me, her shoulders draped with curly dark brown hair. A brilliant red corona swirled around the center of her dark hazel eyes. I can't read, I said to her, lying. My doctor said I need vitamin B. 
Feeling very sorry for me, she headed into the aisle, scanning through the pill bottles with her index finger until she found what I was looking for. She handed it to me, grinning. The first genuinely kind person I've met. She understands what I'm going through somehow. The lights hurt her sometimes, too. Her name is Megan. She has wanted to be a doctor since her grandmother was diagnosed with cancer. Before that, she wanted to be a psychologist. Her older brother works at a fast food place on the other side of town on top of two other jobs. Last summer, she took five grams of mushrooms and experienced ego death while sitting waist-deep in the Guadalupe River. I grimaced to try and keep these delusions from coming into my head. Niacin. Do you have any niacin? I asked. She nodded again, found a bottle, and handed it to me, smiling. Thank you so much, I said. Do you need anything else? Food? Water? Blankets? She asked. No, I'm fine, I replied, starting to walk away. She wants to have more of a conversation with me. She wants to know where I'm from. I wanted to put my delusion to rest. I'm from California, I said. She froze. I was going to ask, she said. I think I can read minds, I admitted. You want to be a neurologist? So that was the beginning of Rivers of the Mind by Timothy V. Uh, a shout out to all the cynical contributors this quarter. Raymond, Joe, Timothy, Martina, Tamara, uh, me, John, Tom, Judy, Charlie, Eponoimo, Colin, Jimmy, Algernon, Ace, Leah, Sam, and Franz Kafka. Um, we just heard from, in order, Judy Haggai, Ace Bogus, Martina Newberry, John Etchum, Colin James, Joe Ciccione, Raymond Solard, Tamara Miles, Charlie Bayer, and Timothy V. Uh, for more information and to find out what happens and more words and beautiful pictures, check out the Cynical, number 111, April 2020, 25th anniversary issue. Rock on. Peace out.